1, as we uh, continue our study through the book of Romans, we come this morning to Romans 1, verse 17. If you remember, if you were here last week, uh, we, we looked at uh, verses, uh, verse 16. Uh, verses 16 and 17 go together and really are uh, form the, the theme of the whole letter. And so we uh, are taking our time. There's a, a lot in these verses. So we looked at verse 16 last week, and this morning we look at verse 17. We will find through our study of Romans that uh, some passages are, are uh, heavier or denser than others, and it's a little more weighting or heavy lifting, if you want to call it that. And so that's one of those uh, passages this morning. So it's a little bit more teaching, I would say, in nature. Um, and uh, so we'll, we'll make our way through what Paul says in this important verse, Romans 1, verse 17. Let's bow before God as we ask for the Spirit's anointing on His Word. Lord God, as we come to Your Word this morning, I pray, O Lord, that You would fill us with Your Spirit, the same Spirit that gave breath to these words written by Paul, would be at work in our hearts, O Lord, to receive them, and to receive them fruitfully that it may bear fruit for our good and for your glory. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. If you're able, I invite you to stand for the reading of God's word, Romans 1. We'll read verses 16 and 17, but the focus is on verse 17. The Apostle Paul says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, because it is the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes, first to the Jew, then to the Gentile. For in the gospel the righteousness of God is revealed, a righteousness that is by faith from first to last, just as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. You may be seated. About a, a decade ago, there was a billboard in the Chicago area that, that got a lot of attention. The billboard said, are you good without God? Millions are. The billboard was put up by the Chicago Coalition of Reason, and according to the coalition's coordinator, the billboard's aim was to hearten humanists, atheists, and agnostics who might feel isolated or misunderstood in their quest for alternatives to religious worldviews. And so the message of the billboard was that you, you don't need God. You can lead a full and a satisfying life without him, and it really won't make any difference in the end. In our text this morning, the Apostle Paul sends a very different message. We do need God. We are not okay without him. And everything that is needed to be brought from death to life, from emptiness to fullness, from, from hopelessness to hope is found in God alone. I mentioned last week and this morning again that these two verses form the theme of the whole letter. Uh, James Boyce goes even farther than that, saying these verses express the very essence of Christianity and the heart of biblical religion. 
And he says they may very well be the most important sentences in all of literature. Now, as we saw last week, just to give you a little bit of a refresher, uh, so Paul begins uh, by saying in verse 16 that he is not ashamed of the gospel. And uh, that is uh, the, the main statement that Paul makes in these verses, and everything else that he says kind of hangs on that statement or is subordinate to that statement. And as you saw last week, uh, not only is Paul not ashamed of the gospel, but we also are not to be ashamed of the gospel. And Paul then went on to give the reason why he is not, to be, not ashamed and the reason why we are not to be ashamed of the gospel. He said he is not ashamed of the gospel for this reason because, and that's the Greek uh, word gar indicating this for this purpose, for this reason, because it is the very power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes. So the gospel, as we saw last week, has an effective and a transforming power. It brings salvation to all whom God has called. That is the main message of verse 16, and that's reason indeed not to be ashamed of the gospel. But we saw last time that this then raises another question, and that is, well, well why is the, the, the gospel the power of God for salvation? Why is that? And Paul answers that question as he continues in verse 17. He says the gospel is the power of God for salvation for this reason. Again, the expression, uh, the Greek word gar, because in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed. So this is why the gospel is the power of God for salvation. It's because it reveals the righteousness of God. And now that phrase, the righteousness of God, has generated more discussion and more controversy and more literature than any other phrase in the entire book of Romans. And that phrase then is the focus of our message this morning. And so our study will really revolve around two main questions. Number one, what does Paul mean by the righteousness of God? That's an extremely important question because how we answer that question will, will determine or will certainly influence, shape how we read the entire letter of Romans. So what does Paul mean by the righteousness of God? And then number two, how do we attain that righteousness of God. And so first, what does Paul mean by that phrase, the righteousness of God? Well, entire books and dissertations and in fact volumes have been written attempting to answer that question, but I think we can condense the literature into three main options. And then I'll share them with you and then I'll tell you what I think is the, the option, uh, the right option and the one that we will use to kind of guide our study of the book of Romans. So some say that Paul means by that phrase, the righteousness of God. Some say Paul means the righteousness that God has. So the righteousness of God is his righteous character. It is an attribute of God. It is something intrinsic in his nature. So he is the God who always does what is right. And closely related to this view is the understanding that righteousness is not only then descriptive of God's character, but it's also prescriptive for his people. And so the righteousness of God then can be understood as the standard of righteousness that God requires or that God demands in order to be in the right relationship with him. That's the first option. Some say that Paul means by the phrase, the righteousness of God, the righteousness that God gives. 
The righteousness of God then is a status of righteousness conferred on those who receive Christ. It is the perfect righteousness of Christ credited to those who believe. And according to this view, Paul is telling us how we are made right with God, and we are made right with God through the imputation or the crediting of Christ's perfect righteousness to us. Well, this is the way Martin Luther came to view the phrase, and he had been trying, if you remember the story of Luther, he had been trying to live up to God's standard of righteousness by his own works of penance and obedience, doing all that he possibly could within his human strength to attain that standard, and he never could, and it only left him with these feelings of anger and despair. And then he came to this verse in Romans. And he came to see that the righteousness of God is not the righteousness that God demands and not a righteousness to be attained through works, but rather is the righteous status that God gives through faith. And this understanding of the phrase was to Luther like the opening of a gate and like light just flooded in and it completely changed the way he read the entire book of Romans, which changed his whole life, which changed the whole landscape of religion as it led to the Protestant, to the birth of the Protestant Reformation. And this has been the traditional understanding of the phrase by most Protestants ever since, the righteousness that God gives. But there are some who challenge this view, and they say that when Paul talks about the righteousness of God, he's not talking about the righteous status that God gives to those who believe. In fact, they say Paul is not talking about how people are made right with God at all. Instead, they say that Paul means, uh, when he talks about the righteousness of God, the righteousness that God demonstrates in his covenant faithfulness. This is the view of many who embrace what is called the new perspective on Paul. And they say that we have understood Paul wrong uh, in all these years since the Reformation, that we've sort of read Martin Luther's context back into Romans, and we've gotten, gotten much of it wrong. And they say that in his letters, Paul was not combating works righteousness in first century Judaism like many have assumed since the Reformation, but rather Paul's concern, they say, was, was that the Jewish commitment to the law and to ceremonial practice was to the exclusion of Gentiles. And that was Paul's main concern, that Paul wanted to correct this error and to show that both Jews and Gentiles were now included in God's covenant embrace. And so when Paul talks about the righteousness of God, according to this view, he's he's talking about the righteousness that God demonstrates. It refers to his loyalty to his covenant promises, his commitment to do what is right, and his covenant faithfulness, which is no longer limited to Jews, but includes the Gentiles. One of the proponents of this view, one of the uh, more well-known and and contemporary proponents of this view is N.T. Wright, who says this. He says, The righteousness of God is essentially the covenant faithfulness of the God who made promises to Abraham, promises of a worldwide family characterized by faith in and through whom the evil of the world will be undone. Now, as you might imagine this new perspective on Paul is really a whole new lens through which to read Romans and the rest of Paul's letters. And I, I think that there are some positive things to be learned from the new perspective on Paul and some maybe uh, helpful corrections from, uh, from some of the things that we've done over the years. But in the end, my belief is that it fails to do justice to the language and the intent of Paul's letters. 
And so for our purposes throughout our study of Romans, my understanding of the phrase, the righteousness of God, is in fact in line with the second view. I think this is the right way to understand Paul and to read Romans. That it is uh, Paul, when, talks, when Paul talks about the righteousness of God, he's talking about the righteousness that God gives. I believe Paul is showing us how we are made right with God. And he is saying that we are made right with God when the perfect righteousness of Christ is credited to us. And he is, maybe not to the extent that we have assumed, but he is combating a works righteousness that had seeped into first century Judaism. The righteousness of God is the status we receive as believers. It is God's gift to us. I think we see this very clearly in Philippians 3, verse 9, where Paul says, I consider everything garbage, that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God. Notice the language, the righteousness that God gives, that comes from God on the basis of faith. And again, in 2 Corinthians 5, verse 21, where Paul says, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Again, it's a, it's a status that God gives, that God imputes or credits to those in Christ. But probably the most compelling case for this view comes from within Romans itself. We're in Romans chapter 3. Paul says, but now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been made known. There's that same phrase, the righteousness of God has been made known. Well, what is the righteousness of God? Paul says, this righteousness is given through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. And so that is, I believe, how uh, we are to take the phrase and what Paul means by the righteousness of God here in Romans 1, verse 17. It is the righteousness that comes from God, the righteousness that God gives to us, the righteous status imputed to us in Christ. I think John Stott put it well when he said, the righteousness of God is God's righteous initiative in putting sinners right with himself by bestowing on them a righteousness which is not their own, but his. Now you may be wondering at this point, why are we even talking about this? Is this not the stuff, right? Some of you are wondering that. I can see it. I, I can see it on your faces. Is this not the stuff of theology classrooms and theological journals? Why are we even talking about it this morning? What does it have to do with us? Well, it is an issue that I think has profound practical implications. The new perspective on Paul has led to what I believe, it, 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 there's, a, there's a danger and, and a, I think something deeply concerning in it that is kind of beginning to make waves in evangelical Christianity. And the problem is this, that the, the new perspective on Paul has led to a diminished view of the doctrine of justification by faith. It has produced an exaggerated emphasis on the horizontal aspect of the gospel while minimizing the vertical, and the vertical is what I think is at the center of Paul's gospel. And so if we read Romans, 
The way that the new perspective on Paul would have us read Romans, we will miss out on the real beauty and the transforming power of the gospel. But if we read Romans through the right lens, then we will be led to deep wonder and, and worship again and again and again as we behold the power of the gospel and what God has done for us and what God has given us in Christ. In the words of a contemporary hymn, no work of ours is good enough for evil to atone. Your merit, Lord, is all we have. It must save and it alone. So clothe us in your righteousness. Hide our filthy rags of sin. Dress us in your perfect garb that we may enter in. That is the power of the gospel. The gospel is the power of God for salvation because it reveals the righteousness of God. It reveals that we are made right with God only when we are clothed with the perfect righteousness of Christ. Which brings us then to our second question. How then do we attain this righteousness of God? And Paul tells us the answer. He says this righteousness of God is a righteousness that is by faith from first to last. It is by faith alone that we are clothed with the righteousness of Christ. And when Paul says that it is by faith from first to last, the expression in Greek is literally from faith to faith, which is kind of an odd expression. But I think the expression emphasizes that we are justified by faith alone. We are declared righteous before God, not by anything we do, not by any works that we contribute, but by faith through and through, by faith from beginning to end. As Paul says in Ephesians 2, it is by grace you have been saved through faith, not by works so that no one can boast. And even this faith, he says, is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God. Now, in our text this morning, Paul then goes on to quote the prophet Habakkuk to support his argument that we are justified by faith alone. He says, just as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. And that quote comes from Habakkuk 2, verse 4, where God is speaking to the prophet. And the prophet had cried out in complaints to God when, when he learned that God was going to raise up the ruthless Babylonians to punish uh, his people, the people of, of Judah. And the prophet didn't understand why would God raise up a wicked, a utterly wicked people to punish his own people. And God assured Habakkuk that though the wicked Babylonians are puffed up with pride and destined for destruction in the end, the righteous, he said, will live by faith. There's the contrast in Habakkuk. He said, yeah, understand, it's not that I'm, you know, uh, saving the Babylonians. It's not that I'm exalting the Babylonians. I'm using them as my instrument. But, but hear me loud and clear. They are a wicked nation. In the end, their wickedness will end in judgment. But, he says, the righteous will live by faith. In other words, on the day of judgment, the wicked will be judged before God because of their wickedness, but those who are made right before God by faith will enter into everlasting life. That is the way Paul understands Habakkuk 2, verse 4. I think we see this clearly when he quotes it in his letter to the Galatians, where Paul says in Galatians 3, verse 11, clearly no one who relies on the law is justified before God because the righteous will live by faith. And so we are declared righteous before God and, and so attain everlasting life by faith alone. But that raises a question, well, what then is 
faith. The writer of Hebrews says, faith is confidence in what we hope for and the conviction of things not seen. Faith is believing in something when you have no tangible, visible, concrete proof of it. Faith is believing that what God says in his word is true, and not just believing it with with a mental assent, but believing it with such deep and personal conviction that you are willing to risk life and limb for it, that you're willing to stake all of your hopes and all of your dreams and all of your security on it. We see a glimpse of this kind of faith in the true story of Brother Andrew, whom I uh, brought up last week in his uh, work in, in uh, smuggling Bibles and sharing the gospel in, in the darkest places behind the Iron Curtain. When Brother Andrew sensed God's call to the mission field, he went to a, a missionary training school in Scotland. And the school's motto was written in large letters above the entrance to the, to the building, and it said, Have faith in God. When Andrew first arrived at the school, the director told him the purpose of this training is to teach our students that they can trust God to do what he has said he would do. And as part of their training, training, they had to go on missionary tours throughout Scotland. But there was a catch. And the catch was that they couldn't bring any money, not 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 a single penny. They had to trust that God would provide And these were extensive trips. They had to trust that God would provide all of their food and all of their transportation and all of their lodging and all of their their, uh, materials and their supplies for their meetings. And to make it even more challenging, not only were they not allowed to bring any money, but they weren't allowed to ask for money or even to bring it up in any of their meetings. They were only allowed to pray and trust that God would provide. And God did again and again and again. Every time there was a need, God supplied. One of the many examples was the renewal of Andrew's visa. It had to be renewed by December 31st or he would have to leave the country. And it only cost a shilling to mail it in, which was just a matter of, you know, about the amount of, a few, of several pennies, about a dozen pennies at the time. So it only cost a shilling to mail it in, but he didn't have a single cent to his name. And so he began to pray. But December 31st was fast approaching, and he still the funds hadn't come in. And then December 30 arrived, the day that it, it absolutely, the application had to be in the mail that day. But still there was no shilling. And then about mid-morning when he went out, he was out on the streets, and he was talking with a beggar. And as he was talking with this beggar, there he saw it on the ground, a single shilling hidden among the pebbles, the sun glinting off it in just the way that that he could see it, but the beggar couldn't. And so he kind of discreetly, as he was talking, he bent down and he picked it up and he put it in his hand and he kept talking a little bit. And then he he began, they, they were about ready to part ways and the beggar said to him, do you have any money to spare? And Andrew says that in that moment, all kinds of arguments were racing through his head as to why he shouldn't give that beggar that money. He needed it. He needed it to mail in his application. He needed it more than the beggar needed. The beggar might only use it to go, you know, waste it on drink and alcohol. But he says none of the arguments sat right with him. He knew that none of them were any good. And so he handed the beggar the coin 
And he began to walk back to his dorm. And even before he even reached his door, he says he met the postman who had a letter for him. And it was a letter from a prayer group back home. And inside the letter was a wad of cash, more than enough to cover the cost of sending his letter to renew his visa. You see, what, what Andrew learned about faith is that it is a stripping away of every shred of self-reliance. And it is trusting completely in humble dependence on God. And that's what Paul is getting at in our text this morning. That we are made right with God, not by anything that we do or anything that we contribute. And it's so hard, it's so hard for us to get that because we, it is in our nature to want to contribute something. To have just a little shred of self-reliance, even as we apply it to our own salvation and our being made right with God. But Paul says, it is by faith alone, by humble dependence and trust in what God has done and what only God could do for us in Christ. As Charles Spurgeon once put it, faith is the eye which looks and the hand which grasps and the mouth which feeds upon Christ. And I wonder this morning, do you have a faith like that? I've always liked the way the Heidelberg Catechism defines faith. The Catechism asks in question, is, uh, should be question 21, not question 27. What is true faith? And the answer the, the Catechism gives is that true faith is not only a sure knowledge by which I hold as true all that God has revealed to us in Scripture. That's the, the intellectual, the mental assent, acknowledging that this, what God says in his word is true. But it goes beyond that. It is also a wholehearted trust, a deep conviction which the Holy Spirit creates in me by the gospel that God has freely granted, not only to others but to me also, forgiveness of sins, eternal righteousness and salvation. These are gifts of sheer grace granted solely by Christ's merit. And so when we put what Paul says in these verses all together, we see that we are not to be ashamed of the gospel. And the reason we are not to be ashamed of the gospel is because the gospel is the very power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes. And the reason why it is the power of God for salvation is because it reveals the righteousness of God, which is the status of righteousness that God gives to us based on the merits of Christ. And we receive this gift of righteousness by faith alone, which is a faith that leads to everlasting life. A Christian writer once wrote about a time that he was invited to the Masters Golf Tournament, and he was overjoyed because, as he put it in his own words, uh, a pass to the Masters is the golfer's holy grail. Everybody, if you, if you like golf, everybody wants to go to the Masters. The only way he was able to attend was by invitation from a professional golfer, and so off he went to Augusta National Country Club in Georgia. And it was even better than he expected. He could hardly believe it as he was making his way, walking the grounds that he'd seen so many times only on TV. And there he was in person. And it was even more beautiful than he had seen on TV. 
But then he says he got a little greedy. He wanted to see the locker room where the clubs of golf legends Ben Hogan and Paul Azinger are displayed. But he wasn't allowed into the locker room. A guard was there, and a guard stopped him at the entrance. And this writer says he showed him the pass, but the guard just shook his head and said, no, that, that's not going to cut it. And the writer said, well, I was, I'm here by invitation from a professional golfer, and still, that didn't matter. Because only players and caddies were allowed into the locker room, and the guard, well, it was obvious he wasn't a player, and the guard knew he wasn't a caddy, because all caddies were required to wear, if you've ever watched the, the Masters, you know this, all, re, all caddies were required to wear these white coveralls. And he didn't have them. He only had his normal clothes. And so he had no choice but to turn and walk away. And so too, this writer says, we may find ourselves at the gates of heaven one day. And the only way in is to be clothed with the righteousness of Christ. And we will say in the words of that great old hymn, nothing in my hand I bring, simply to thy cross I cling. Naked come to thee for dress, helpless look to thee for grace. Rock of ages cleft for me, let me hide myself. In thee. To God be the glory. Let's bow together. Lord God, as we come before your throne this morning in a time of silent prayer and response, we praise you for the gift of righteousness. We praise you, O Lord, that the only way to receive eternal life, the only way to be allowed into the glorious kingdom of Christ is to be clothed with his perfect righteousness, a righteousness that is given by you as a gift, by sheer grace, based on Christ's merits and given to us through faith alone. Oh Lord, I pray. In this time of silent prayer, if we have not yet, O oh Lord, come to that kind of saving faith, may your spirit work in our hearts in this time of silent prayer to draw us and to give us that gift of faith. And if we have, then I pray, O oh Lord, that in this time of silence that you would deepen our wonder and strengthen our faith as we ponder the transforming power of the gospel and the beauty of what you have done for us in Christ by taking away from us our filthy rags and clothing us with his perfect righteousness. Oh Lord, hear our silent prayers of response.
Lord God, it is in Christ alone that we are declared righteous in your eyes. It is in Christ alone that we stand in your, that we will be able to stand in your holy presence, not condemned, but accepted. For we are wearing the robes of righteousness that Christ and Christ alone has earned for us who believe in him and receive him in true faith. And Christ alone, who took on flesh, fullness of God and helpless babe, this gift of love and righteousness, scorned by the ones he came to save. Oh Lord, may we live in deep gratitude and wonder over this gift of righteousness in Christ. It's in his name we pray. Amen.